Hello, you're listening to On Israel in Al-Monitor, I'm Ben Kaspi from Tel Aviv. All eyes are focused in recent weeks on various developments in the ongoing war between Israel and Iran. The warnings uh, to Israel is to get out of Turkey immediately because Iranian agents are trying to kill them. All sorts of reports about unexplained deaths of Iranian scientists, some uh, from food poisonings, others from failing off their balcony, not to mention the drama in Vienna over the talks of Iran's nuclear program that are going nowhere. The clashes between the two countries in cyberspace also seem to be uh, escalating. About two years ago, in what uh, former military intelligence head General Amos Yadlin called an unprecedented attack, Iranian hackers tried to cripple the comp- uh, computers that control the water flow and and the wastewater treatment in certain parts of Israel. The attack was uh, detected before any real damage was done. It was followed by the crippling of Iran's strategic Bandar Abbas seaport, allegedly in an Israeli counter-cyber attack, and by other mysterious cyber attacks on Iranian facilities. Last week, another chapter in this war was revealed when the Israeli company Checkpoint a global leader in cybersecurity discovered that Iranian hackers had infiltrated the Gmail boxes of senior Israeli officials, including former Foreign Minister Tzipi Livni, Amos Yadlin, the former U.S. ambassador to Israel, and senior defense industry figures. The hackers got into these accounts by sending the mail recipients an article supposedly written by Amos Yadlin to get their feedback. They even managed to uh, persuade a senior Israeli official who heads a sensitive security company to send them a photocopy of his passport and Gmail password. Where is this war leading Israel and Iran? And where is the cyber era leading us all? Can these uh, relatively sterile operations between laptops and mobile cellular devices turn into confrontations that take a toll in human life and cause real strategic damage to countries and the superpowers. We'll talk about all this today with our guest, who is in charge of global communications at Checkpoint, Gil Messing. By typical Israeli coincidence, Messing was also Tzipi Livni's chief of staff throughout much of her political career, and he will be here with us after a short break. I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department Correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts along with first-class reporting and analysis.
Now I'm happy and privileged to introduce and welcome my friend and colleague, uh, the Chief of Staff of uh, Glo and Global uh, Communication in Checkpoint Software Technologies, Gil Messing. Hi, Gil. How are you doing? Thank you for joining us here in, on Israel and Al Monitor. Hi, Ben. Good to be here. So we're going to speak about something that uh, actually everyone is uh, talking about and you deal with it uh, professionally. And uh, we will uh, get into details because the last affair, the last incident that was uh, published here in Israel is uh, actually something the checkpoint discovered. But, by, by, but first, let's go uh, to, the, to the big picture. Something about cybersecurity, everyone is talking about it. Uh, it's a very hot topic. Why is it so common? Does it really affect everyone? Why now? That's a great question. Um, I think that the main difference why cybersecurity has become such a hot topic is that because it becomes more common than ever before. And the reason it become more common than ever before is because what used to be real life weapons that was only used by governments and against governments in recent years was just leaked into the internet and everyone with a Wi-Fi or a connection to the internet can basically download weapons that was once used by governments and use it against whoever they want. And the same kind of weapons that were used by governments to attack other nations are now being used for financial reasons, ideological reasons, and whatnot. And they're very, very effective, reasonably cost-effective. And the bottom line is that you can really hurt a lot of people without investing that much money. Now, to your question, does it really affect everyone? It can potentially affect everyone, but it really more affects those who are being targeted. It can be high-level officials. It can be companies that hold a lot of data. It could be hospitals that have a lot of personal data on all of us and might want to pay money if they're attacked. So I wouldn't say everyone is, is, um, everyone is targeted, but in cybersecurity, everyone could be targeted and everyone could be, um, could be affected. So with the way things are going, the trend is that it becomes more common than ever, more sophisticated than ever, and more widespread. And at some point, all of us can be targeted. So before going on to the, to the main event from uh, last week, uh, how come government weapons became so cheap and so uh, affordable and they're uh, just out there in the market or in the darknet? Are we talking about the, the offensive cyber uh, uh, companies? And we have a few here in Israel that uh, are developing such weapons or uh, uh, inefficient regulations or what? There's a million reasons. I'll just focus on main two. One of the reasons is that um, there's been very large scale leakages from governments into specific groups on the internet and more specifically what is called the dark web. That's kind of an other kind of internet that hackers are using. And people from inside the administration, decided, inside the government, decided for their own reasons to leak a lot of what is called in a professional term, exploit kits, which is in simple terms, weapons. Just leak it to the internet so people can use them. Uh, a very known incident is, is related to the WikiLeaks links. Um, and again, people from all parts of the world have decided to share what they were working on or what they used to work on and decided it should be a commodity that everyone can use. The other reason is that people who did have the information and the know-how of how to create these weapons have basically left their governments 
and they've started to open up these what you call cyber offensive uh, companies and they're just selling these like, same weapons the same exploit um, the same exploit kits to whoever is paying them more now regulation of course plays plays a role here uh, and it's different in different parts of the world but the combination of these two factors things that have been leaked to the internet actively and people who have the know-how and are all now operating in the business sector made this such a big commodity and how everyone can use it by the way it's not cheap at all not everybody can use it but it's definitely out there and again as i said if you have a wi-fi or a connection to the internet and know a bit about this sector then you can very very easily find ways to attack a lot of people and you can become a hacker yourself and uh... Do whatever you like to. And, and again, before going to this event we're talking about, is there any, uh, do you think it's important that governments will start to regulate or to, uh, to have special statutes or uh, special steps in order to try and stop it? The same way you, you try to, to halt uh, uh, drug dealers, or etc. I think the regulation is never a sole solution. It's part of the solution, but it never stands on its own. The, the example you've given is an, as a real example of why, why what I'm saying is true, but you can really apply it to any kind of other example or any kind of other field. Of course, if governments coordinate and cooperate and have some sort of laws that, are, that oblige everyone, it's going to become harder to sell these weapons and use them. But it's not all of the solution. It's part of the solution because there's an open market here, like in other parts of, uh, of the economy. And if you have people that are willing to sell and people who are willing to buy, it's going to be very hard to stop them. But some sort of regulation is already taking effect. Some sort of international cooperation is already happening. The thing is that the, the attackers or the hackers are 10 times more sophisticated than everybody else, than especially those who are trying to uh, uh, apply the preventions to their own companies. And we are facing a situation, what we called fifth generation of cyber attacks in, uh, that are being tackled with third generation of cyber defenses. Right. And this is why attacks actually happen and succeed. We don't prevent ourselves with the same levels of protections of what is used against us in terms of the weapons. I wanted to ask later about, uh, is, is, does the attackers have the, the natural advantage? And he just uh, touched it, but let's go to the, to the event we're talking about. I think it was published last week, but it was discovered a few months ago. And the company who worked for a, a checkpoint was the company that, uh, that discovered the whole thing. And uh, the names that are involved are many names. Whatever went out was a former minister of foreign affairs in Israel, Tsipi Livni, former chief of military intelligence, General Amos Yadlin, and many others that were victims of Iranian hackers, and take it from here. Yeah, so we're talking about a six-month operation, at least six-month operation, that was carried out by a very known uh, Iranian hacking group that is, um, uh, that is linked to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. What they did is that they used a very sophisticated way of social engineering to make these people that you've discussed and others, all of them high profile, all of them are linked this way or another to Iranian causes, the Iranian nuclear program and others. Um, they have managed to trick them into either pressing a link or opening a document which would eventually stole their credentials and stole a lot of information about them. The way it worked is that they have managed to penetrate uh, the email accounts or two email accounts are very high-figured Israelis that have linkage, as I said, to the Iranian causes. 
um, either from academia, think tanks, or as you said, former military background. Once they were inside their email accounts, they could see correspondences and threads with other high-level Israeli officials. And what they did is basically went inside the emails, inside the threads, and in, in continuation to previous, uh, previous uh, emails exchanged that they've had with one another, started to imitate themselves as if they were the people sending the emails. So to be more specific, uh, they were imitating themselves to be a very known military general who sent an email to the former Minister of Foreign Affairs, Tsipi Livni, asking her to open a file about um, an article he wrote and give her an opinion. This is by some, by, by the way, this is something that actually happened with the both of them before that. So a very regular type of operation for both of them, type of activity for both of them. They used to do that. When she was asked to open the file, she was asked to give her email address, her email uh, password, which raised her suspicion. And after several times she hasn't opened the file, then this person, again, imitating to be this general, it wasn't a general, it was an Iranian hacker, kept emailing her in Hebrew and asking, why are you not opening it? I need your answer. And when she saw this general on a private event, she asked him, why are you sending these, all these emails? What's the pressure? And he said, that wasn't me. And then she contacted us uh, and we started to get inside this infrastructure and we saw that the same kind of social engineering, and again, a very sophisticated one, was used to target and impersonate very high level officials, both Israelis and Americans, including the former ambassador uh, of the United States to Israel, the, um, uh, the head of the biggest think tank in Israel, very high senior, high level people in the business world, again, in security companies related to Iran and others. All of the targets are very, very high profile. All of them are related to Iran this way or another. And all of them didn't just get regular phishing emails of someone asking them for money, things we know how to be suspicious about, but rather re genuine emails from people they actually known from their own email accounts. Everything looks very real, but it was actually Iranian hackers from the revolution Revolutionary Guards and other people that they thought it was. After six months of um, very close surveillance that we've done over this in cooperation with Israeli security forces and other companies like Google, because it was Gmail accounts, we managed to stop this uh, operation and close these accounts. And of course, everyone involved was notified. And I think it shows how sophisticated the Iranians are and how phishing attacks can become so sophisticated. As I said, it's not what we used to have before and see before. These are new things that it's very hard to not be tricked by. And as you can see, very high level people, all of them are aware of cybersecurity. All of them have experience with that. They were still victims of these attacks. And some of them, unfortunately, did have their personal information leaked. I know Tsipi Livni many years, and uh, things are uh, that you know her as well. I think you've been uh, her chief of staff as well. And I think we all have to thank because we know this, this woman is very suspicious. And finally, it, it became very efficient. Yes, you know, the, yeah. <laughs> Tsipi doesn't, she doesn't believe anything. And because I, if I would get a, an email from this general who is very known as well in Hebrew, to read is, a, is a, something that he wrote, a feature that he wrote or a piece that he wrote, I would link on it because it, as you said, it's, it looks very real. No one is promising me to get me $6 million from a, a, an account in Nigeria. So why not? Uh, she was suspicious and, and she actually called me. That was the time when we talked was a time when there was a lot of chattering in Israel about hacking to phones. Uh, it was the beginning of the year, you know, uh, you know uh, the context. And she told, she asked me, 
how do I know if my phone was hacked? And I started to answer and I also asked, did anything suspicious happen to you? And then she told me the story and, uh, and the rest is history. And yes, and I think it, one of the best ways to deal with cybersecurity is exactly this. Be extremely suspicious also when it gets to people that you know. Now, we can't be suspicious of everything everyone, and everything all the time. But when the file included the password of your email account, then I think that raised a red flag and I'm, and I'm happy she did so. And as I said in previous occasions, we need to be under the assumption that these such campaigns, such hacking operations are taking place as we speak by the Iranians and others. Social engineering is the number one cause why people become victims of cyber attacks because people are managing to trick them. And what's the, the, the ultimate goal? We, we, right now, we are facing a, a huge drama in Turkey. Uh, Mossad and all the other guys are trying to, to stop the, the Iranians' uh, uh, agents who try to, to kidnap or kill Israelis. But here, what these hackers wanted to achieve, did they want to maybe try to temptate uh, these guys to, to, to fly to a, to a convention and then uh, do something bad or, or, or just information, getting into the, the accounts, get, getting the, 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 uh, the password and, and bringing as, many, uh, as much information as possible? I'll divide my answers to two, the things that we know and the thing we suspect. In terms of what we know, Two of these um, documents actually had invites to conferences abroad. Tsipi Livni received one of them, and a high official from a very known Israeli security company received the other one. And then they asked for the passport of these people, and unfortunately, the business guy sent his passport to the Iranians. Once they hold their passport, obviously, um, we... We connected this company while it was happening and stopped the stopped the uh, the travel from happening. But once they have their uh, passport information, they know many things about this person. Uh, so two of these incidents were about taking actual, it's real live conferences, actual invites, and they asked for the passport information. The other in incidents included basically copying whatever it is that they type on the key on the keyboard. So if it's a password, then it's a password. If it's something else, it's something else. And, and let me just remind everyone that we live in an era where our email accounts are not just emails. They're connecting us to our uh, contact, bill, contact list. They're connecting to our schedules. And you can easily trace someone just by being inside his or her email. So this is something that we know in terms of what we suspect. In a digital world in which we live in, as I said, information is not just power, it's the main way to get you to do things. And I think that by getting into someone's private information, understanding who they're talking to, on what, what their travel engagements, where they're supposed to be at, that creates a lot of operational opportunities that without it, it's going to be very hard to track. So let's just say, as an example, a theoretical example, that the Iranians would want to kidnap someone in an overseas country. They would need to know when this person is overseas by getting uh, some sort of a hold into that person's uh, Gmail account, they can see the calendar. And by understanding where this person will be in the calendar, who they're meeting in which hotel and what time, it could be very valuable information for them to carry out whatever it is they wanted to carry out. So when you're involved in cyber espionage, as the Iranians are and many others, the result is to get some sort of information that will be very beneficial for you in carrying out physical uh, physical attacks, not just cyber attacks. And of course, if we're talking about private information that is sensitive, 
then you get a very big leverage on the person whose sensitive information you have. You know, we've talked about it in the past in previous elections when it was discussed about Benny Gantz, if it's true or not, and other things. When you get someone's private information, there's many things you can do with them. And cyber is your way to do that. And this is why they're all investing so much efforts, resources, and people in doing so. You've been very clear. Uh, let's uh, say some uh, general words about hackers today. You touched it, but uh, after talking about governments and Iranian hackers that are connected this way or the other to a revolutionary guards, the, 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 the general hacker, we have a lot of them. Uh, who is he? Is it is he criminal? Is he an old guy that, uh, that uh, is bored? Youngsters? Uh, where from, what, what can you say from checkpoint uh, point of view about this population? I know it's going to sound like a cliche, but it's really true. It's everyone, everything you mentioned and, and, and everything else in the middle. And I, as I said, we have seen almost everyone who has a connection to the internet with the ability to become the hacker. Obviously, these are things that you need to be trained about, but you can be trained to become a hacker with Google, just with a Google search. You don't need to go to university for this or to a special military unit. You can be trained yourself. And all of these weapons are out there. So it's really everyone. So uh, one of the biggest uh, recent cyber operations that have happened in the financial world involved a 16-year-old living in a suburb of uh, a UK town. Again, that person was 16 years old and he was coordinating his operation with a 17 years old living in Brazil. I've seen uh, operations that are linked to Hamas and when the people that were behind them were discovered, you would see that they're very, very young themselves. You could see people that are um, frustrated employees that want to uh, create some damage to their companies and they could be a he or a she from any kind of age. And of course, it could be very sophisticated people that were trained by governments to do so, governments and militaries. So it's everything and everyone. It's not really related to a specific part of the world. You can actually see a very interesting phenomena that in third world countries or developing markets, there's a very, very large increase of people that are becoming hackers because this is something that is very, very cheap to become. Again, you don't need to pay much to get the weapons. You don't need to pay anything in order to be trained. You just need to have a connection to the internet. So you could see that in places with poverty and places that do not have a lot of resources, a lot of possibilities, you have people that are linked to that. If you remember, there was a very horrific uh, terrorist attack in, in uh, Dizengoff Street a couple of months ago. And uh, terrorists who carried out the attack, I think he lived in Nablus or Janine, one of the two, he had uh, hacking experience himself as well. So it can really be anything and anyone from everywhere. And the reason is, is what I said in the beginning, cyber attacks have become a commodity. The weapons are becoming a commodity. Everyone can get them. And this is why these things are so dangerous. Very interesting. And uh, also we've touched this, this as well, but uh, who do you think has the upper hand uh, automatically, the offense or difference in cyber? Because it's, or I'll ask it in a different way. Can, can I get myself the perfect defense from cyber if I'm rich enough? Um, the short answer is yes, but, but the longer answer is not necessarily. Um, I'll tell you why I say that. First of all, you have companies like Checkpoint and others that their main, main goal 
or, or main reason to exist is to understand all the trends, realize what all the attacks look like and could potentially be like, and create the preventions against them. So theoretically speaking, if you're very, very, very well protected, you're not getting attacked. And truth be told is that if you look at the big organizations, they're not being attacked or they're being attacked. They're not being, they're not being um, victims. The, the attacks do not succeed. But I do think that in a general term, this is a very, very exhausting race between the hackers and the defenders. And it's about who managed to get anywhere first. And because the, the data is so distributed today, just think of yourself as a person. Where do you install your information? Where do you install your most sensitive data? Is it in one place, multiple places? All of us have it in multiple places. So if you don't protect all of them, then the one vulnerable place, the one hole you keep in the wall is exactly from where you'll be attacked. This is why when we want to do good, we want to be very strong in terms of cybersecurity, we don't just recommend to buy products. We recommend people to adopt a certain type of behavior, the suspiciousness we talked about, the alerts, the always being alert on who is sending what and who's who's exactly contacting me and what do they want me to do, the websites I go to, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not about the products and the protections you buy. It's also about how you behave as a person and people that are more cautious and the people that are more knowledgeable about cybersecurity are more, are more protected for sure. It's a miracle I was not hurt yet. Uh, let's say something about... You, you don't uh, necessarily know, you know, Ben. Yes, I know. You, you, you're might, you, you might have been attacked and you don't really know that. Yes, it's possible as well. Uh, what's the role of cyber, of uh, cyber in today's uh, warfare, Russia and Ukraine? Because, you know, we, we had very high expectations after dealing and talking about cyber so long and the notorious uh, Russians' ability in this field. We expected that uh, the war will be mainly on cyber and the Russians will, will just cripple and, and, uh, and confiscate or, 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 or destroy the, all the Ukrainian uh, economy or something uh, with cyber. But no, it's tanks and it's missiles and it's uh, people killing people. What is going on there, cyber talking? It's, it's, it's really a great question. And uh, the truth is that Russia is a cyber superpower and make no mistakes about that. And the reason we know that it's notorious for doing so is because that in the past, in Ukraine and other places, Russia has been linked or Russian hackers have been linked to very sophisticated attacks that were devastating against critical infrastructures and others. And when the war began, it began with a very significant cyber offense against Ukraine, which was very dramatic. But two things happened in the war that I think were surprising. One, Russia did not use all of its cyber capabilities against Ukraine. They, I don't think they have I don't think they have really scratched the beginning of what they could do. And the other thing is that you could see that, you, that Russian targets have become uh, very, very, very sensitive to attacks because Ukraine, right from the beginning, the Ukrainian government actually made a public call for hackers from all over the world to join the Ukrainian cyber army. This is how they call them. And they actually opened a special telegram groups asking hackers from all over the world to attack Russian targets that they've actually listed every day in this telegram. We just told them who to attack today, and they really attack them. So Russia suffered from a lot of cyber attacks as well, including on very, very sensitive infrastructures like their satellites and others, which affected the physical world. And I think one of the reasons or the main reasons why Russia did not exploit everything that it could do is because in cybersecurity, once you reveal your uh, capabilities, 
everybody knows what you have. And if you want to save some capabilities to, you know, Armageddon or mm-hmm. to, you know, when, when stakes are high and there's nothing else to lose, you wouldn't use these capabilities until you really have to. And I think that Russia has decided, like in, like in other fronts of the war, not to use all of their capabilities, but to use only some of them and save the rest for other types of scenarios and, and change their focus. We have a but lot of, I don't think a lot of scenarios to wait yet uh, with Russia. Definitely. So. But should, make no mistakes. Russia is a, is a cyber superpower. It has capabilities that haven't been revealed. And it can create crippling damage to Ukraine and any other target they want to they want to attack. My last question, it's complicated uh, is election. We in Israel, uh, I think we're going to election soon. And uh, everyone remembers the what I think the Russian interfer- interference in the American election in 2016. Do you think there is a way that the state can uh, can uh, make sure the the elections are safe? are clean, are not uh, manipulated from the outside by, by a cyber superpower or just hackers? Yes, it can. And it can do so by really identifying all the soft, the soft spots from which infiltrations can happen and protect them. So if it's a digital election, you know, you, underst- you need to understand to hold a certain amount of protections against the infrastructures who, ha- who are doing the elections. If it's about the parties and the information that they have about all of us, the electorate, then it's about, you just need to identify exactly where the data is and protect it. And the successful cyber attacks that happen during elections, and it happened everywhere, it happened in Africa, in, in the United States, in Europe, it happened everywhere, is because there was always one spot that was left blind and had uh, that was vulnerable and had a very significant times of data that could be manipulated and attacked. So just like in any other things in life, if you manage the risks and you understand exactly what you need to protect, the chances to, um, the chances to you know, decrease the potential of an attack are very, 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 very high. But if you neglect doing so, then you probably will be attacked. And nowadays governments understand that cybersecurity or cyber attacks are part of any kind of elections. They just need to decide what they need to protect. Gil Messing, this was fascinating, so interesting. Thank you very much for joining us here in uh, Al Monitor. Tudaraba. Thank you, Gil. Thank you, Ben. We'll take a short break. Be back just right after this. Thanks. Hello, I'm uh, Gilles Kepel, professor at uh, Sciences Po and Normal Sup in Paris and author of a number of uh, books and articles on the Middle East. Through my new podcast, Reading the Middle East on the award-winning media service and monitor, we will take a deep dive into the trends in the region with the authors and thought leaders who are shaping how we think about the Middle East. Reading the Middle East will be a fantastic addition to Al Monitor's outstanding podcast lineup, including On the Middle East with Andrew Paraziliti and Amber Inzaman, and On Israel with Ben Kaspit. You can subscribe on your favorite listening platforms. We look forward to your joining our conversation. Thank you for staying with us. I think one of the most interesting uh, things Gil Messing just told us was in the end of the, of the conversation when we were speaking and uh, chatting about uh, the war in Ukraine. And I asked him why 
we don't hear more about cyber damages and warfare. And we hear about uh, what we knew all over for centuries, tanks and airplanes and missiles and people killing each other in said that yes, Russia is a cyber superpower with many uh, capabilities. And in the past, uh, Russians or uh, Russian hackers were involved in causing a lot of damage to Ukraine and other places. And also that this war was uh, beginning with a very significant uh, cyber offense uh, of the Russians against Ukraine. And that, that uh, was very dramatic. But then happened two things. One thing is that Russia did not uh, take advantage of all its uh, cyber capabilities against Ukraine. They didn't really uh, scratch the beginning of their capabilities. And uh, Messing says it's because they don't want th these kinds of weapons are kept to, to the doomsday, not to a, a war with Ukraine. Maybe to a war, a, a bigger war, and we don't want, we, none of us want to go there. And the other thing that was new for me is that uh, Russia is targeted uh, as well. And uh, when the, the, the war started, the Ukraine, the government uh, published a public call to hackers from, from all over the world to join the, what they, they call the Ukrainian cyber army through uh, secret channels in Telegram. And they're uh, fighting back. So it's, uh, it's interesting. Uh, but right now, it's not, uh, it's, not, it's not a game changer. When we were speaking about the latest event in Israel when uh, Iranian hackers tried to, uh, to uh, penetrate uh, the Gmail accounts of uh, senior Israeli officials, etc., the main tip that uh, Gil Messing gave us is to be suspicious. Uh, the coincidence, the typical Israeli coincidence, uh, made Tzipi Livni, one of the victims, she worked with Gil Messing when she was Minister of Foreign Affairs, and she called him, and uh, she's a natural suspicious lady, and uh, Messing said, it's not only when they ask you for money, when they ask you for your password, start sus uh, suspecting the, the event and don't cooperate. That's all, I think, and I hope you found it interesting, and we'll meet you next week, next time. I'm Ben Kaspi from Tel Aviv. Take care. Bye-bye.